Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. The thing that wasn't mentioned about New Day is we actually won the rugby tournament. <laughs> we, um, we do talk a lot about New Day uh, over this time of, kind of year, but you see that and you see why, actually. It's been so formative in many of our lives and still continues to be. So a big thank you to those of you who went through the great hardship of eating lots of cakes earlier in the year in order to fund a bit of uh, getting some of our young people there. You can see there why all those extra calories are totally worth it. It's just so exciting um, what God does. And I, I, I appreciate what uh, Maddie said about feeling old. I was there for a few days, and there was the neon night that John talked about. And I said, well, I didn't know. They should have told us. And all the youth went, it was on Instagram. I was like, oh, no, I'm too old now. I don't, I don't see these things. Anyway. We're going to continue our series in the Minor Prophets. I hope you're enjoying this series. I love the Minor Prophets. I think they are like the hidden gems of the Old Testament. These little books hidden at the back of our English Old Testament, written like two and a half millennia ago, but packed full of truth about God and the gospel and all kinds of other things, which can be a real blessing to us today. We've already looked at Amos and uh, Hosea and Zephaniah, and today we reach the book of Habakkuk. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. And Habakkuk is a book where the prophet wrestles with really big questions about human existence. Questions like, how can God allow injustice? How can God allow wrongdoings to seemingly go unpunished? And why do good things happen to bad people? It's kind of wrestling with, how do we live in this world where there seems to be lots of imperfection around us? And Habakkuk kind of goes on a journey through the book of wrestling with those questions. And as he does, he learns some important things about God and some important things about the gospel. And we're going to try and journey with him today to get a bit of that. And we need to look first at the context. We've seen already in this series, for each of these books, we need to know the context, kind of where they fit in. Because when we reach the prophets in the Old Testament, we're kind of partway through the story. So it's a bit like we're coming in and halfway through the film, and we need to find out what's already happened. Or you're starting this series a few episodes in, and so you need to catch up on what's come in the previous episodes so you can understand what's actually going on. The same is true for these books, which come near the end of the Old Testament period. And so we know that in the Old Testament, God is on a mission. He's on a mission to restore humans' relationship with him and to fix all the brokenness that's entered the world through our humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And we know these prophets are mouthpieces from God. They're, they're kind of messengers from God. And they're calling people to return to obedience to God. Because the people of Israel and God had made this covenant. This agreement. And God said in this agreement, if the people kept the law, then they'd receive his blessings and they'd maintain good relationship with him. But it also said if they failed to keep the law, if they weren't obedient to God, then actually they'd receive the curses of the covenant. And their relationship with God would not be good. It would be hampered. And so these prophets are calling the people back to that, uh, to that covenant. And if we look at our timeline, hopefully we've got, we know that a bit earlier in the story, in 930 BC, the key moment comes where the people keep rebelling against God as that God has to act decisively in judgment. And the kingdom gets torn in two, with Israel up in the north and Judah down in the south. And we've already heard from, uh, from Amos and Hosea, both of whom talked to uh, Israel up in the north, warning them, you need to turn back to God, live God's way again, come and worship God, but they fail to do so. And so in 722, we can see the Assyrians come, the big superpower of the day. They invade them, they enslave them, they cart them off into exile, which left just Judah, the smaller kingdom in the south left. And last week, Steve spoke to us from Zephaniah, who is a prophet to Judah, those guys in the south, about kind of 100 years later, again warning them, you need to turn away from your wrongdoing, turn to God or judgment will come, 
But also we saw this glorious promise that even when judgment comes, God himself will act. And God will turn away the judgments and God will rejoice over us as we rejoice over him. And Habakkuk comes just after Zephaniah. So he's talking to Judah, this kingdom in the south, who are still not following God faithfully. In fact, things have got rather worse. And he's warning them that judgment is coming. But Habakkuk is a bit different from the other prophets. He's still a mouthpiece, a messenger from God. But whereas most of the prophets would have stood up in the marketplace and the temple in different places and spoken their messages, which are then written down for us, Habakkuk actually is a conversation between God and Habakkuk, God and the prophet. It's a conversation, a dialogue, and we now get to kind of overhear this conversation and learn from it. And so you can kind of see the structure. We've got a bit of a diagram here, so the structure of it, that you get this to and fro in between Habakkuk. Habakkuk's got some beef about something. He's got a complaint he brings to God, and then God comes and brings a response. Habakkuk is very unhappy with God's response, and so God, he brings another complaint, but then God brings another response. And then Habakkuk has to wrestle with all these things in the final chapter, in this long kind of psalm, this long song, until he gets to his final conclusion, his final response. So we're going to try and walk through a bit this conversation to journey with Habakkuk and see especially what does he learn and can we learn about God and about the gospel. So we start off with Habakkuk's first complaint. He's looking around him. He's very confused, very unhappy about some stuff. And so he brings a complaint to God. Let's read it in chapter 1. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is really upset. Really confused, really frustrated, because he looks around him, and there's all this wrongdoing, there's all this injustice, and it seems that God isn't doing anything about it. God's just allowing it to continue. Now, it's not clear, is he talking here about something a foreign nation is doing? Is he talking about things the people of Judah, the people of God are doing? Not quite clear. I think probably what the people of Judah are doing. But either way, he's saying, God, all this stuff's happening, and you're not doing anything about it. There's destruction and violence. Why aren't you acting He's kind of wrestling with how can God allow this kind of stuff to actually happen? And this suggests Habakkuk is probably writing in the reign of Jehoiakim. So last week, Zephaniah was under Josiah, who's one of the very few vaguely good kings in this period of Old Testament history. He tries to bring the people back to God. His younger son then rules for only three months, and then Jehoiakim, the older son, takes over. And basically, any good Josiah did, Jehoiakim undid. Jeremiah 22 tells us there was injustice and murder and violence and oppression in the reign of Jehoiakim. And Habakkuk looks around at this society, an absolute mess, and he says, God, why are you doing something? Why aren't you acting? And so God responds. He responds, he says, Habakkuk, don't worry, I've got a plan. We can pick up in verse 5. This is God speaking now. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. 
Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk says, God, there's this mess. Why aren't you doing something? And God says, don't worry, Habakkuk. I've got a plan. I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians, we tend to call them. They were on their way to becoming the superpower of the day. So the Assyrians have been the big guys in the block at this point. They're the ones who invaded the northern kingdom. But now the Babylonians are beginning to kind of become the top dog. Very soon they'll be the big, big empire in the world. He says, don't worry, they're going to come. And they're powerful warriors. He tells us they are dreaded and fearsome. Their horses are faster than leopards. They gather captives like sand. They just pick it all up, thousands and thousands of grain. They look at kings and rulers. They laugh. They look at fortresses. They laugh. They're powerful uh, warriors who no one will stop. He says, don't worry, Habakkuk. I've got a plan. The Babylonians will come, and they will bring justice. They will come and bring judgment on the people of Judah. It's all good, Habakkuk. I've got a plan. And Habakkuk hears this. And he's horrified. He's like, God, what are you talking about? How can you do that? He's saying, how can you let these terrible, terrible people judge these quite bad people? And so he has to bring a second complaint in verse 12, talking Habakkuk to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil. And cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, that's Babylon, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk's horrified. He's brought this complaint to God. God's brought the answer, but the answer is completely the wrong type of answer, completely not what Habakkuk expected or wanted. He's saying, well, how can you use the Babylonians? They're even worse than we are. How can you look at traitors? How can you remain silent when the wicked, the Babylonians, swallow up the man more righteous than he, the, the Judahite, the people of Judah? He says, God, it's like you're making us fish or little crawling insects. We're helpless, and they get hooks, and they fish us up. One of the things ancient nations did when they took nations to exile is they'd hook noses and drag people away. He's using vivid imagery. If that's going to hook us away, it's going to be like a big net. He's going to pick up all the fish. We don't stand a chance. How can you allow this to happen? He just says, I don't get it. They're going to live in luxury. They're going to trust in their own strength. How can this be the right thing? And he's so confused. He says, you know what? I'm just going to have to wait. There's got to be an answer. There's got to be some reason, some making sense here. I'm just going to have to wait. So I'm going to stand at my watch post, stand at the tower. I'm going to wait to see what God's going to say. And then see how I, Habakkuk, can respond. And so God brings a second response. Verse 2, chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. 
For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul, this is Babylon, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. God kind of says, I understand. I, I see the problem. <laughs> I get the complaint. I get the confusion. And God's response ultimately is, you just got to wait. You've got to wait because an answer will come. And he says, you're to write down Habakkuk a vision. You're to record this vision. That may be the whole of this book. It may be something we don't have recorded. I think it's probably the end of chapter 2. So the rest of chapter 2, verses 6 to 20, talk about the destruction that will come to Babylon. Destruction will come to Judah, but then it will come to Babylon. There are five woes, these things that bring distress and sorrow. He's saying, woe to Babylon, because this is going to happen. They've done this, but now this will happen. God's going to bring judgment upon them. He's reassuring Habakkuk, yes, I'm going to use them, but they're not going to get off scot-free. I'm going to bring judgment on them too. There will be justice done. He says, Habakkuk, you've got to wait. You've got to wait and trust that I, God, will work it out. If it seems slow, he says, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He's saying it might look like it's delayed. You might be thinking something's gone wrong, but no, no, there's no delay. At the right time, when God chooses, it will happen. And when he talks about waiting, he introduces a, a contrast between two types of people, between the sinners who will be judged and the righteous people of God who will be saved. In verse 4, and this is a, a key verse in Habakkuk for understanding the gospel, the good news of what God is doing in history. It actually becomes a key verse in the rest of the Bible for understanding the, the gospel, the good news of what God does in history. Verse 4 says, Behold, his soul, talking about Babylon, is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. He says the wicked, the sinners, those who are going to be judged by God, have puffed up souls. He's saying they're arrogant. They're proud because ultimately they're trusting in themselves. All that stuff we read about the Babylonians talked about them trusting in their nets and their weapons and their God is their might. They're trusting themselves rather than trusting God. They're worshipping themselves rather than God. That's what the Babylonians do and that's what the Bible tells us is the essence of all sin, of all rebelling against God. That actually whereas we should trust God, we trust ourselves or someone else. Whereas we should worship God, we worship ourselves or someone else. Romans 1 talks about worshiping the created rather than the creator. What the Babylonians are doing is just a picture of what every single one of us does apart from Christ. When we're outside of Christ, this is how we all live, prouding our souls, trusting in ourselves, basically going our own way, thinking that's the best, rather than going God's way. He says the righteous are, are proud in their souls, so that the wicked are proud in their souls, but the righteous which means those who have a right legal standing with God, those who will be accepted by him, embraced by him, saved by him, brought into relationship with him, the righteous shall live by his faith, by the individual faith. He's saying the definitive marker of someone who's part of the people of God, which is the people who will be saved and won't experience this judgment, the definitive marker is that they have faith. They trust. They trust in God and they trust in his promises. Which means he's saying to Habakkuk and Habakkuk's contemporaries, the defining feature of being in God's people isn't being circumcised or having the law or anything like that, being ethnically Jewish, which is what they would have thought. 
It means to us that actually the defining feature of being part of the people of God isn't going to church or reading the Bible or praying or being a good person or trying to help other people. All the things we might sometimes think make us look good to God. We might make we think or protect us from the judgment of God. He's saying, no, no, the defining feature of being in a right relationship with God is always faith. Trusting what God says, trusting in his promise to save and his call to live his way. And when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament affirms this. And actually the New Testament uses this verse. Both Paul the Apostle and the author to the Hebrews use this verse to talk about salvation. In Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11, Paul makes this very point. The mark of being in the people of God is that you trust God's promises. Not that you're Jewish or circumcised or you do good stuff, but that you've responded to God's promises in faith. You've taken hold by faith. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the requirement for salvation is exactly the same. It's not works in one and grace in another. Actually, it's grace, uh, salvation by grace through faith in both, trusting the promises God gives. And this faith is in God's promise of forgiveness and salvation. It's like God is kind of offering this gift of forgiveness, of salvation, of being in his people, and faith reaches out and says, I'm taking that. Now, if someone's giving you a gift, it's ready there for you. They want to give it to you, not because of anything you've done, just because they want to be a generous giver. But if you don't physically stretch out and take hold of it and unwrap it, you don't get it. God's longing to save us, longing to bring us into his people, and faith says, and I'm going to take hold of that. Now, when you reach out and take the gift from your friend, you don't thereby earn the gift. You're just taking hold of what's already been given to you. Faith reaches out and says, I'm trusting this. I'm taking hold of the gift that God is wanting to give me. And notice he says the righteous will live by faith. Not just the righteous will get into the people of God by faith, they will live by faith. Faith isn't just the way we first come into relationship with God, it's also how we continue in relationship with him. In two ways, it's how we continue because we continue in relationship with God by trusting in his promise to save. For us, trusting in the work of Christ, actually the reason we can stand before Jesus today is because of what he has done on the cross. Not because of we were saved then and then we do some good stuff to try and commend ourselves to him. It's always by trusting in those promises. But then also, we, the righteous man lives by faith continually onwards because it's faith and trust in God's way. Trust that God's way is the best way which helps us to live his work. You see, ultimately, when it comes to living God's way, it's this question actually, do I believe what the world says, what my sinful desires say, or do I believe what God says? They both tell me that they're going to bring me more life and more happiness. Which one do I listen to? The righteous person lives by his faith, his faith in God says this. And so even though everything around me says something different, even though inside I feel like this is going to make me more happy, God says this will make me more happy, so I'm going to live this way. The righteous person shall live by his faith. And some of us have done this. We've entered by faith. We're living by faith. We're enjoying living God's way, trusting in his way. And that's wonderful. And Habakkuk's message to us would be to encourage us in that and to spur us on to keep going. Some of us have entered by faith. We said, yeah, Jesus, I know I need you to forgive me. I trust in that promise to forgive me. But now we're trying to do some good stuff to try and top it up. We said, I know Jesus forgave me then, but I'm still not a particularly good person. So I need to do all of this and that and that. And hopefully that will be enough that when I stand before Jesus on judgment day, I would have done enough to actually get in. We kind of kind of top up and finish the job ourselves. We start by faith, but continuing work. So Habakkuk says the righteous person will live by his faith. It's always about faith, always about trusting in the promise of God and trusting in his ways. Some of us today actually need to begin living by faith again. We've responded in faith in the past, but now actually we've been thinking, oh, God's going to like me because of stuff I do. And actually, no, it's because of the work of Christ. It's the only thing that commends us to him. 
Some of us today will need to kind of repent, to turn away from that wrong way of thinking and begin to live by faith to commit to that. And some of us here today will never have responded to any of this. Some of us today will never have responded to Jesus in faith and trust at all. Friends, we read about the, the judgment coming to the Babylonians. As you read through the Bible story, you see that the judgment happens in the kind of physical world in the Old Testament is only a picture of a greater judgment to come. That every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There'll be the day of the Lord, as the Bible calls it, where every one of us gives an account for how we live our lives. And unless we have responded to Jesus, received his perfection, we don't stand a chance on that day. But God's got that hand outstretched offering that gift and wants us to come to him to take it. For you today, friend, that offer is there. He wants you to reach out in faith and take hold of it. And I'm going to give you opportunity later to do that, to respond in faith and become one of these righteous people in the people of God. So Habakkuk's been told to wait, to wait and to live by his faith. But that does kind of raise the question of, well, what does it look like to wait? Habakkuk knows that perfect justice will come and sin will be judged and the righteous will be saved, but how does he live now? And actually his situation is very similar to ours. We know there's a day when Jesus comes back and he will enact perfect justice. We know that he will judge sin. We know that he will save those who are righteous by faith, and yet we live at the moment in a world of pain and injustice. What does it look like to be someone of the people of God who waits patiently for God to act? When in the final chapter of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, he's kind of wrestling with that question. He's thinking, okay, then what I've seen, how do I now work out how to live? He reaches some conclusions, I guess, about what it now looks like to live in this way. He starts in verse 2 of chapter 3. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He knows who God is. He thinks on who God is. I've heard the report of you, he says. I know what you're like. And he knows what God does. Your work do I fear. He knows the kind of stuff that God does. And as he reflects on who God is, as he reflects on what God does, he then prays that God would do it again. This is who you are. This is what you do. Now in my day, would you do it again? He says, would you revive it? Would you make it known? Would you do it here and now? And he knows that God is a God who is just and who is merciful. In the Old Testament, we see God revealed as this wonderful God who is perfectly just, but who also is gloriously merciful, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, whose heart's desire is to save men and women and children and bring them into relationship with him, even though every one of us has turned our back on him and has hurt him. He reflects on who God is, and he cries out, God, will you do it again in my day? And then as the prayer goes on, or the psalm goes on, he kind of begins to recount some of the things that God has done. He reflects more on who God is, reflects more on the works of God in history. And if you read it through, if you know some of the Old Testament stories, you'll hear allusions to things from the Exodus story and things from the, the time at Sinai when the law was given. Because that was the supreme example of the outpouring of God's wrath and the working of God's mercy, those two things that Habakkuk is asked to happen. In the Exodus story, you see the supreme Old Testament example of the outpouring of God's wrath when he brings judgment upon the Egyptians. In the plague, especially the death of the firstborn, and then the waters coming and drowning the Egyptians after the Israelites have gone through. But also, you see the supreme examples of the mercy of God, that he rescues his people Israel out of Egypt that their eldest sons don't die, they get through the water, and he makes a covenant with them. The covenant is a gracious act of God to maintain relationship with the people that he has rescued. 
And as he thinks on who God is, what God has done, he gets to the end of the psalm and he reaches a bit of a conclusion in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enter into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He's saying, I've seen how glorious and majestic you are. I've seen what you do. And actually it leaves me trembling. Uh, rottenness in my bones. My legs trembling. Yet, he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail and the field yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He says, I'm going to wait. After thinking of who God is, what God does, I haven't heard what God has said. He does exactly what God told him to do. I'm going to reverently wait because I know there's a day when God will sort it out. I know there's a day when God will bring justice. He will judge the wicked. He will save the righteous by faith. And so I am going to wait. And he says, I'm going to wait, even if that time is difficult. Because he knows it's easy to say, I'm going to wait. But he knows that the time between then and the, the enacting of that could be a very difficult time. But he says, even if everything falls apart, even if every good thing is taken away, still he's going to wait. Still he's going to be one who's righteous, who lives by his faith. Because he realizes that actually the good things in life are not the things God gives. Actually, the best thing in life is God himself. He realizes actually the thing that sustains him is not any good gift that God gives. Actually, is the gift of God himself. I will rejoice in the Lord, he says. Not on the stuff God gives, not on the stuff God does. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He is going to be the source of my joy. He's going to be the source of my peace. He's going to be the thing that sustains me in the waiting, even if every single thing gets taken away, every single thing falls apart. You see, Habakkuk knew that the true source of joy and life for those who are righteous by their faith is God himself. But actually, the true source of joy in life for any human, because what we're made for is relationship with God himself. He and he alone can truly satisfy. He knew that actually in the gospel, God is the giver, but God is also the gift. The glorious gift that God gives us in the gospel is not any particular thing, it is him himself. The gift of the gospel is that we get to know God, we get to be in relationship with him. It's why in John 17, Jesus says eternal life, actually the good thing about eternal life isn't that it goes on forever and ever and ever, it's that it's with God. Eternal life, he says, is knowing you, God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life will be great not because it will go on and on because we have nice stuff. Eternal life will be great because we'll be right there with God, face to face, perfect, perfect relationship. That's the great prize. That's the great thing. When you read the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22, the thing that's really emphasized is God and people together. You don't learn much about what the world will be like. You learn that God and people will be together. That's kind of all that matters. That is the great, great prize. Which means that for us too, Living in a world where we're waiting for Jesus to come back, we're waiting for the fullness of what he's done to be enacted, the best thing uh, for us to keep us going is him. And even if every single good thing gets taken away, even if life just seems to fall apart and seems painful, he is the thing that keeps us going. He's the place we find true, fulfilling life. It means that whatever we face, if we lose everything, if we're the victim of terrible injustice, though there's incredible pain which is right for us to feel in that, there's an invitation to find true life. Even Habakkuk says, find true joy in that context. 
And notice that Habakkuk has to go on a journey with this. Habakkuk's really interesting and helpful to learn about how do we, as the people of God, walk through difficult situations. Notice he wasn't afraid to ask the really big questions, actually to, to bring them to God and to ask the really big questions. He wasn't afraid to express what he was feeling, even to God. That's really important, really biblical principles, actually. It's healthy and right for us to ask big questions we're wrestling with. It's healthy and right for us to express the, the things we're feeling to God and with others around us to help us process those things. He's gone on this journey. It's kind of a, a picture or an example of what the Bible will be called lament in the Bible. Where you kind of journey through, you're expressing the questions, you're expressing the pain, and you keep going and going and going until you kind of get to this point where I can say, even so, I'm going to praise God. And there's something about getting stuff out, which then allows us to get to the point of, even so, I'm going to trust God. That's the journey that Habakkuk has been on. It's a wonderful example to us. And that's been an active thing for him. Notice he's had to actively pursue getting to the point of God will satisfy him in every situation. God is the true prize. God is the true source of joy. And that's true for us too. You know, a relationship with God requires time and effort, just as any kind of relationship does. But it's time and effort which will never be wasted. It's the very best thing we can ever invest into, ever uh, give into, ever give our time and our energies into. You will never regret any time or effort you've put into investing in your relationship with God. All of us need to go on this kind of journey that Habakkuk has gone through. So Habakkuk's conversation with God shows this journey, and it's a journey where he learns about the gospel and about God. But the gospel, he learns that the good news is that God will one day in that perfect, perfect justice. Nothing will be overlooked. No injustice will allow to be, uh, be allowed to go unpunished and undealt with. But the good news is that those who have trusted in the promises of God to save through the work of Christ, and those who live life by trusting in his way, will be saved, will be in the people of God and enter into perfect relationship for perfect eternity with him. And then on God, Habakkuk has learned that his deepest need, actually, is not to have a good, comfortable life. It's not that actually all this injustice around him, which no doubt was affecting him. It's not that all that changes so he gets a, a more comfortable life. His deepest need is to find true satisfaction, true life, true joy even in God himself. He knows that that is the, the place and the only place that, that can be found. And the band can back up at this point, please. Some of us here today, and we know these things, and we're living them. We're living as the righteous people by faith, enter by faith, continuing by faith, and that's wonderful. And God's message to us today would be to keep on going. Sometimes that's hard, sometimes that's painful, but God would say, well done. Keep on going, keep on running that race by faith. Some here, as I said earlier, we've entered by faith, we responded to the promise of Jesus, but now we're trying to continue by good works. I know Jesus forgave me then, but I've got to do this, that, and this, and that, and the other. And I've got to look good so that when I stand before Jesus, he'll actually accept me. We started by faith, but now we're not living by faith. Habakkuk tells us the righteous shall live by his faith. For some of us today, the right response is we need to recognize that's been us and repent, turn away from that one way of thinking. Choose to trust again, to walk in God's ways. You might want to talk to a friend or one of the kind of team uh, at the end just to share that with them, pray with them to help you in that. Some of us today have yet to respond to this at all. Maybe this is all completely new to us, and maybe we're realizing, actually, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I can't stand before a perfect God. And that does mean that judgment is coming to me as it was coming to the Babylonians. Well, today, God's extending his hands with that gift and saying, won't you respond in trust to this promise? The promise of forgiveness, the promise of acceptance before God, promise of eternity. Okay, you are alive. Rather than being trusting ourselves with that soul puffed up, as Habakkuk says, Actually, we trust in him and become part of the righteous people of God. Should we stand together? We're going to begin to respond. I'd love us to pray a prayer together. 
And this is a prayer which you might have prayed loads of times before, and you can pray it again if you're a follower of Jesus. It might be you're praying it today, and you're praying it as that kind of resetting prayer, of I started by faith, I continued by works, but now I'm saying, no, God, I'm coming back to faith. It might be actually you're saying today, this is the very first time I've ever responded to God in faith, but this is my moment, and I want to do this. I think the prayer will come from the screen behind us, and let's just read it all out loud together if you uh, want to and feel comfortable to, and then we're going to worship. Let's read it together. Lord God, I want to find true life in you. I'm sorry that I've gone my own way and have looked for true life in the created rather than the creator. Please forgive me. From now, I choose to live by faith, trusting in your promises and finding true life in you. Amen.